Bill Sarukas talks about how one of the identities of the D.C. snipers was discovered. So this is the first time you've heard Malvo's name, correct? Yes. Yep. He gave me gave me the name, date of birth, um, his FBI number, um, and may, and maybe another number in there too. Just there was he said there's one arrest on his record. And let's talk about that real quick. I think we kind of touched on it before, but why was why was he in the system? He had been contacted by INS in uh, Blaine, Washington, um, over an immigration matter, the the state of Washington. So that record, you know, they took fingerprints at that time, and those fingerprints matched one of the prints on that firearms catalog out of Montgomery, Alabama. Welcome to Game of Crimes. They, they discounted a lot of things. And here's another thing they discounted. Let's listen to this uh, call that came in, because this is from the actual, uh, the snipers. Brassel City Police, love calls, this line is recorded. Good morning. Don't say anything, just listen. Where are the people that are causing the killing in your area? Look on the tarot card. It says, call me God. Do not release the press. We have called you three times before, trying to set up negotiations. We've gotten no response. People have died. Yes, sir, I need to get to information to out to Montgomery County Police Hotline. We're not investigating your crime. Do you like the number? Charlie, Charlie. I, I guess uh, I don't want to put too much on the communicators that took the call, but it's like— I, I don't believe many were brief. No, it was kept uh, as much in-house as they could at the time. But th this call is taking place um, at least a week after that tarot card is found. And this call originated from the Texaco gas station in Woodbridge. Um, and, and it's only one one voice on there. It's Lee Malvo on there speaking. Um, but... It, you know, I think she should have done a little bit more to take it serious and maybe forwarded the call to someone. Um, and, we, and we know from the four-page letter that was dropped in Ashland that they were trying to communicate with more than just the Rockville Police Department. They were trying to communicate with the FBI, with uh, CNN, um, and several other outlets. Um, and And for us... When we saw that information in that letter, that's what really triggered our part of it was beginning to research all that communication. You mentioned the call came from a Texaco gas station. How did you come about arriving at that? Because there are thousands and thousands of phones at that time. Cell phones were just starting to become more popular, um, far more. Po they became uh uh, you know, obviously, we're, uh, you know, the advent of modern technology, the Blackberries coming out, but we're still thousands of cell or uh, pay phones out there. How did you guys narrow it down to that particular one? Well, we, we had the date and time of the call going into Rockville. So knowing the the terminating information on that call, we just began to query it through different um, communication carriers until we came up with uh, the origin of the call. 
And then we can tell whether or not a calling card was used, a cell phone. In this case, coins were put into that phone at the gas station. Um, and so we, we were certain at that point that um, the call originated from that Texaco gas station. And what was your plan versus what was the FBI plan for that phone? <laughs> well, when, when we learned of... You're laughing, Murph. Uh, you know, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when when we uh, when we learned where it was, I mean, we were doing we were going in about twenty different directions as far as known phone calls at this point, and you know, criminals are, are habitual people in, in a sense. In that, we kind of understood at this point that if they're making uh, calls using coins, they're probably doing that from other places as well. They're probably not using a cell phone in one and a calling card in the other. Um, so we started really looking at all those calls and the origins coming from pay phones, which turned out to be the case. They were using pay phones in the Ashland and Richmond areas. And so our response was uh, we were going to put surveillance on some of those areas. I believe there were two calls that may have originated from that Texaco gas station. And so we, we put surveillance on there. We worked with the uh, the command post, put surveillance on it. And um, at, during one of our surveillance efforts, um, some FBI agents rolled up and began to disassemble and remove the phone. Um, While you were doing active surveillance on the phone. Yeah. Did, yeah, they, it, did they know that? I mean, if, if everything's being coordinated through the Joint Operations Command, what the hell? <laughs> well, I have a feeling that they, whether they knew or not, they, were, they wanted that phone. Um, I've never been able to figure out whether they knew about the surveillance and just disregarded it or they just said we want that phone it's got coins in it we're going to take fingerprints um, i say so. all of the above <laughs> it, but you know we, we laugh about it now because it's kind of standard but it but it's so frustrating too to your point you've got a joint operation center a jock right. um which we used to joke about <laughs> uh there's no balls in the jock this week um <laughs> But um, you got the jock. But the whole purpose was to establish a place because this thing was multi-agency, multi-jurisdictional. I mean, it, it was multi-state, obviously. I mean, you're going all over the place. And the one thing that you guys – let's talk real quick, though, too, because there were some challenges with information sharing. I mean, we did not have the advent, advent of all of this nice – application-based, web-based stuff where we can share stuff instantly over the internet. I mean, the FBI had their rapid start system. You guys you guys were having to actually put people in other places and call in with information to ensure, right, that there was all the information was being centralized. Yeah, as each of the shootings took place, the the scope of this thing just kept getting larger and larger. And with investigations like this, when you when you have six different jurisdictions involved, they all have their individual responsibilities to investigate these cases. So a lot of times information that's being developed in Fairfax County may not, all of it may not make its way to Rockville or, or to Ashland, Virginia, Henrico County, or to over to Prince George County. So our solution was we're going to put commanders in each one of those areas so they can have that relationship with with that command post and kind of bring everything together 
Um, we still had people at the jock. Um, we had technical operations people there. We also had uh, deputy U.S. marshals from the task force there that were providing as much support as we could um, with whatever they needed. Um, but it was important to us to just have someone at each one of those locations that that were working the individual piece of that uh, that local investigation. Yeah, because I mean, it's this thing has got it just it grows a life of its own with paperwork and everything. Because the other thing you got to you got to be cognizant of, too, is the whole goal is to catch these people and take them to trial. And so that means you've got to have reports done, chain of custody. You've got to have, you know, you don't want to let stuff fall through the cracks. So, um, you know, so let's keep going. So you guys are working this. You're sitting there. You're one of your best leads disappears into an FBI evidence response team truck. So what happens after that? <laughs> well, I think that's that so the, the critical yeah, the critical uh, thing that happened next was the shooting at the Ponderosa in Ashland, Virginia, uh, where they leave a a four-page note tacked to a tree. Um, the individual that was shot there survived as well. Um, it was a husband and wife. They were they had gone to Pennsylvania and were returning to Florida, and had stopped for gas and food. And uh, as they were walking in the parking lot. Um, the, the, the male individual was shot and he, he survived. Um, but as they began to investigate, um, they found a uh, bag with a, some paper tacked to a tree. And they also found another matted down area where they believe someone had been sitting or lying down. But the letter was a four-page document. It was taken into evidence. It was preserved for you know, all the processing that would be required of it. And it was flown by uh, Virginia State Police up to the command post in Rockville. It was opened late that morning, and um, I received a call from, uh, I think, one of the Marshal Service guys to come up. I went up there. They weren't going to release it to anybody. They didn't want to fax it to anybody. They didn't want it getting out to the media again, so... I drove up there. This is a, a Sunday morning, I believe. I drove up there and um, I, w I went into the conference room and page by page, I went through it. Um, all of the phone calls were important to me. There was a mention of a credit card in there where they wanted to $10 million deposited into an account. Um, but I took all the information and started writing it down. As I was driving back to my facility, I recalled seeing in there that they wanted to contact law enforcement with a phone call at 6 a.m. at the Ponderosa. They had the number for the payphone just inside the doors at the Ponderosa. So I, I, I turned around and went back and I said, well, what happened with this phone call? And they said, it didn't happen. We didn't open the letter till after, you know, till around 10 a.m. So... The the strategy then was for Chief Moose to issue another statement saying, hey, we got your message, but you, know, you need to get a hold of us again. It gave us some time to set up a, uh, a trap on that line at the Ponderosa and to have it forwarded to the jock. Um, hey, Billy, real quick, tell, let folks uh, who aren't in the know like you, tell them what a trap is versus like a trace or a wiretap and stuff. Yeah, a, a wiretap would be uh, include voice, um, the content of a call, the content of an email, 
a, a trap and trace for a telephone call is just capturing the either the ingoing or outgoing number or source of the call uh, so that law enforcement can determine both ends of a uh, communication. And that's what you guys were, you were wanting to see when that call came in, you were wanting to see what number it was originating from. And hopefully if you could respond fast enough, right, you might be able to get into the area um, where they were on the phone at. I mean, that yeah, being kind a, of the theory, right? A, a trap usually goes on to a, a number where you're expecting to receive a call, whereas a pen register is a device that captures the pulses on an outbound uh, communication. So depending on what information you have depend makes um, determines which end of it you can do. Sometimes you do both. Um, but in this case, you have no idea where they're going to be calling from. No. So we wanted to we wanted to trap that call and then we had to forward it to the jock so that Chief Moose and uh, the other commanders there uh, could listen to that. But like I said, they they missed their their window of opportunity there and it didn't happen. So they had to rearrange for another call, um, which would take place the next day, Monday morning. Um so I spent all day Sunday meeting with other investigators, meeting with technical operations people, running down all the numbers and information that was in that letter, um, running down the credit card information. It had been stolen from a woman in Arizona. Um, just tracking everything that we could in there, notating everything, the, the, the plural sense of some of their comments in there. Um, at this point, we're only looking or believing that it's an individual. Uh, so the plural sense in, in that letter, it's kind of telling us maybe two people are involved at this point. Plus, we have the um, the information from the pastor that's indicating that two people were on the phone as well. Um, so at this point, you know, the, the focus is really changing to probably two people involved in this. Again, it goes back to you can't let the profile determine. The profile is just one tool. It's not the ultimate definition of, you know, how you work the case. So you've got all of this stuff coming in. So I guess the leading question is, did the call happen? The call happened the next day. Um, the next morning, it came in. It went, it, it came into the uh, Ponderosa, was forwarded to the jock, and uh, it was a recorded uh, message uh, from Malvo and Muhammad. The call originated, we, we had a technical uh, operations senior inspector there by the name of Tim Hine. Um, he got the information. The call was, was taking place. He, pro he probably had the information within a few minutes of where the, uh, the call had originated at an Exxon gas station um, in the Richmond area. You know, we were talking Sunday. We know because we can look into the future. Sunday, they will be caught eventually the following Wednesday. But we are now into the biggest phase of the operation looking retrospectively, right? Because now we're getting to the point of where you've got major conversations coming out. Do you release information that you're about to develop on the vehicle? Because uh, you you work very hard to, to they, they, they have to be in a car. We know that. Um, so we have to figure out what they're driving and what they're doing. So Starting Sunday, let's start talking about how how hectic it is, this next phase of the operation. What information do you have coming in? What is leading you down this path that ultimately leads us to the discovery of the vehicle, which becomes the key piece 
of how they finally locate them. And uh, Jeff Nice and the HRT guys, you know, end up taking them into custody. But l- let's start from there, uh, Bill, and go forward. Okay. Well, af- after I returned to our facility with the, you know, copied down contents of the four-page letter, um, I, I call in a bunch of technical people. Um, to start working the uh, telephonic information that was within the, the the communication. But also I met with a couple of task force guys. Uh, I met with Lenny DePaul, who was uh, with the New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force, and with uh, Vinny Senzamichi, who was also with the task force, but working as a, a New York State parole officer. When we start talking about the letter, both of them saw Jamaican-type references within the letter. So certain phrases, word is bond, the five stars on the front page. Um, they just generally mentioned it, and, and both of them had worked with, um, you know, Jamaican issues and, and criminals in the past. So they recognized some of this information. It, it, our conversation was probably an hour long, but they did mention it. Had anybody else picked up on that? Prior to that, not that I'm aware of. Um, so I took it. I took it back to the office and started to to look into everything that had been discussed and all the information in the the four page document. And as we're developing information on the credit card and um, the telephone numbers, you know where these calls are originating and terminating, and we, we determined additional calls that were made. Um, from some of these pay phones around the area, we we now had a, a a map that we could put together of where these guys were standing at certain times at certain days that gave us a little bit more of an understanding of maybe their movements. Um, but having that actual information where they had their feet were um, during particular times, now you can go to surveillance cameras. Um, at businesses and and start pulling all that information. You know, and even back in that day, even though surveillance cameras weren't, you know, the best pictures, when you go back and look at the Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh was found on a surveillance camera down by one of the restaurants there. He stayed at the Dream. I, I know because these guys built the bomb basically five miles from my boyhood home there in Chapman, Kansas. But, you know, you cannot, you just hit a key critical point. Even though there wasn't a lot of video surveillance out there, you do get lucky sometimes. So the question is, did you get lucky with any of this? Did any of it pan out? Not that I know of. I, 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 I'm not aware of any video that came back showing them on a payphone or anything like that. So the, 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 the big thing that we were dealing with on that Sunday afternoon was the fact that they had called into the Ponderosa, you know, per the content of the letter and no one answered. And and at the time, there were still law enforcement officers standing outside of that Ponderosa that heard the phone ring. Um, just nobody answered it while they were still processing the shooting scene. Well, let me ask you a question about that, Billy. If would, Do you think the outcome would have been affected at all if a police officer had picked up the phone? Do, I mean, you think about it, he probably doesn't have a pen and a pad there. He just, you know, the phone rings, just, hey, what's going on? And, um, would that have benefited the investigation or do you think it might have hampered it a little bit more? It would have probably confused them more than anything else. Um, they probably would not have known why the call was coming in. But we, we had we had all night to, you know, make the necessary arrangements 
Um, but nobody, and that didn't happen. But nobody looked at the so, letter. Through through another press conference, uh, Chief Moose made it clear that you know we're we're ready to take your call, and so the following Monday morning that happened, and it was a recorded message uh, from the two of them. We still don't know at this point who they are. But on this call too, you heard there were two voices on the recorded call, or just still one voice. Only one voice on the recorded call. Okay. And for those of us who lived through this out in this area, you know, too, I remember watching those cryptic press conferences with Chief Moose, and my thought is going, you know, obviously they're communicating, but these messages are cryptic. It's like, um, uh, you know, stuff that you would think the the, the stuff of spy novels, you know, and clandestine meets and stuff like that. So when you're watching this play out, it's like, I figured something's going on, but it's like, could never understand what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, if you remember too, there was uh, the the gas stations were starting to put up tarps and so forth around the gas pumps. And I tell you what, I out on Route 50 leaving SOD heading home. If I stopped to get gas, I got out, put the nozzle in, I got back in my car, and I slumped down in my seat. Well, and let me tell you, I was out with my daughter. She was playing softball. We're out there. Everybody's watching it. See, I I see a guy that just looks dodgy enough to me. I went out and actually confronted him. Like, what are you doing out here in center field? you know, staring at everybody when everybody else is parked up. I mean, I probably was a little short with the guy, but it's like, you know, this whole thing put the, the you know, here's here's the scary part for me. And it, to your point, Steve, you didn't know what the whole thing was. You didn't know where it was coming from. It's not right. like they were going to rob a bank like we did with the North Hollywood shootout, you know, with Rick Massa, we talked about this. These guys were preying on people's fears. You had no idea where they were going to hit next and yep. what they were going to do. And everybody... I mean, you watch them at the gas stations, like you say, dodging behind gas pumps, hiding in their car, you know, running people running from the front of the department store to their vehicles, holding their groceries. Yeah. yeah. And there was nothing similar amongst the victims. I mean, it, it no. involved it everybody. Random. If you were breathing and you were standing up somewhere, they were going to shoot you. Anyway, we kind of hijacked part of this, Billy. Sorry. We were Sorry. getting... <laughs> <laughs> we get a little involved in what Back we Back to our regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast with our guest of honor, Bill Sarukas, by the way, author of Chasing Evil. Uh, which you can find on Amazon and tons of other places. So anyway, back to your story, Billy. So let's let's take it from there. So I started just working the, the case as we normally would in any other case, you know, trying to develop information um, from, from the four-page document, um, which was our best piece of information at that time. I mean, it was indicating that there were two of them. The, the information from the pastor was indicating that there were two of them. So on Monday morning, that that recorded call does come in uh, to the Ponderosa. It is transferred to the Joint Operations Center. And within just a couple of minutes, um, our representative there, Tim Hine, has the origin of the number, which is at an Exxon gas station in, um, in the Richmond area. And Tim relays that on to Lenny DePaul, who who has a team in that area. We we had spread the teams out in the areas of the pay telephones that we were already aware of. Um, so we how close was this call to the pay phones you were already aware of? Was this one kind of in the cluster of them, or did they go outside the area? They they I they were around the corner from the other ones. It was walking distance. So Lenny's instructions to his team was, you know, let's let's get a good perimeter on this thing, and then we'll we'll slowly work our way inside 
but before he could say that, uh, people were moving in on a white van that was parked, had pulled up alongside of a payphone and where a man was talking that there were two people in the van uh, because of the hysteria with that, that white truck again. The the officers were, were very quick to, you know, jump on that. So the initial impression is this thing is over. The shooting rampage is over. We have two of them in custody. It's done. And I was on the phone with a communications carrier, and I'm sorting that part of it out, and... It's confusing to me because when they when they went in and, and detained these two individuals, one the driver was on the phone. I was showing that it was a very short call through the carrier, and so I gave Lenny DePaul the number, and he said that's not the number at this phone. He looked across the, the parking lot at the gas station. He sees some other phones. He went over to them, and there it was. Bingo. And the call of the two individuals that were being detained had started before our call and went after. So it was definitely not them. The media was already shutting this thing down. Um, I, I put in the book that I got a call from a producer at America's Most Wanted. You know, congratulations, way to go. I said, keep taking tips. These aren't the guys. She said, what do you mean they're not the guys? I said, I'm telling you, they're not the guys. Keep taking tips. Don't don't put anything out that they're they're in custody. Well, it turned out that it was um, it was two individuals, one from Mexico, one from Guatemala. Uh, they were turned over to INS eventually um, after they were questioned extensively. I'm sure about this. Um, <laughs> and they changed but, their underwear. <laughs> yeah, I was I was, and and everybody that I worked with was totally convinced that these were not the guys. So. We were now back to square one, but it, it occurred to me that since that phone call the, from, the, from Malvo, the recording, began about three minutes after the other call had started, they intentionally picked that parking lot because of that white truck. There's just no doubt in my mind. And we're pretty convinced to this day that they pulled over into a parking spot just outside of that gas station and sat and, and watched everything go on didn't they and and watched the show yeah and see you know this is a lesson for any of you folks out there you know who are currently in law enforcement or want to get into law enforcement this is one of these lessons to where you just cannot get so myopic you just cannot put these blinders on that you can't see the force for the trees right You've got to keep your eyes open. It's like responding to bank robbery calls. You know, you've got to keep your eyes open, looking at the actions of people, look at their reactions. You know, uh, it's just, uh, this is, I tell you what, what this is a great case study in is, is how we need to, especially in the law enforcement community, have your eyes open. Don't, you know, do what Edgar Allan Poe said. He said, believe nothing that you hear and only one half that you see. Be a constant skeptic, and I think it'll serve you better than running after, you know, white panel vans, you know, just because they happen to be in the area. And guess what? These guys gamed the system. They they yes, used they that against them, you know, didn't they? I, I believe that they did. Um, Great distraction for them. Yeah. When it gives yeah, them time to get away while everybody's looking for white panel vans, they just drive off. They don't have to speed. They just drive away. It's like, hey, officers, have a good day, and they they leave. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and if we had just waited about another minute, I think we could have resolved that the, the it was another phone in the lot because the the company could have told us that that call had been in progress for 20 minutes when the recorded call was only a, you know less than a minute long. So we we could have resolved it without doing it the way it was done, but I I totally understand the officers going in there as well. I mean everybody the the whole area is on edge because of this thing, and they see a white truck with two guys in it at the payphone, you know, and uh, and the address was given out as the as the uh, Exxon gas station. It, it there wasn't any direction which payphone it was at the time because there were multiple multiple ones in the lot. So you know, and as a uniformed officer, they they're not privy to the same amount of information that you guys are coming out of the jock there, but. Uh, not making excuses for them, but I'll be honest with you, if I had been in their shoes because I was a uniform officer for a while, I probably would have had the same reaction and, and approached them and taken it down, not knowing what I was screwing up. Yeah, but that's 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 why I said you, you learn a lot as you get experience. It's kind of like, let's take mm -hmm. a breath here, folks. You know, let's step back because uh, yeah, let's let's game play this or let's play this out real quick. Had they not approached that van, like you said, and you've got the other stuff, if those guys had been sitting there. I'm assuming one of the first things, because you got experienced guys in the field, you put a perimeter up there and nobody leaves, right? You stop everything from moving, everything from leaving the area, and then you've got a good chance to to uh, got a cordon around these guys. You work it <laughs> car by car. You come up on these guys. And, and I think that was Lenny DePaul's intent was to get a, just a really tight perimeter and move in slowly. You know, that white van wasn't going anywhere at that right. point. It, they weren't going to allow it to leave. They all saw it. They they. It, it was uh, on the minds of everybody, but everything within that perimeter was going to be the, the subject of their interest, not just the white van. Right. And and Lenny was experienced enough to to understand that he's done it many, many times before. It just didn't work out that time. And um, I don't think anybody blames those officers though for getting in there. Now everybody's on edge, right? So, but yeah. but and we're not laying blame, folks. Don't 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 right. go and say, hey, you're second guessing him. No, we're not. We're just simply saying, if you think about this and you game play it out, there's a reason why you put a lot of experienced people like Billy and Lenny and all these other guys on it because they've got experience doing these things before. But anyway, let let's continue on. The, the, you know, obviously the, these two individuals. Uh, uh, and it's INS because 9-11, the, the Department of Homeland Security has not been officially formed yet, so it's still INS at that point, and they get uh, they get thoroughly investigated. They're sent off. But what happens after that? Because, like I said, this this it, this. Well, let me ask you this question instead: How much does the uh, broadcast that hey, it's over, we caught these guys, hurt the ability for you guys to get tips? You know, does it does it impact? Does it slow anything down? Do other police departments go, hey, we're going to slack off now because we got the guys? Did this in any way impact the tempo of the operation? Um, for, from our perspective, no. We, you know, the, the marshal service people knew very well that these weren't the guys and we were continuing on and doing what we always do. I think public-wise, yeah, if someone starts to put that message out there that they're in custody or they're showing, you know, the, the helicopter footage from above and two guys are laying on the ground and, you know, it's being reported that these are the guys, yeah, there's a little bit of a relief for the community um, as well as, you know, I, I don't need to call anymore when I see that white van go by my house. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the the point that we were trying to make with everybody was, Get it out there and make sure that everybody knows these aren't the guys. And Chief Moose did a press conference very shortly after that. And it was confusing to the to the uh, media who thought this thing was over 
why he's trying to con- continually communicate with these guys. So, and he sends another message to them because there there was some language within that call that they wanted uh, Chief Moose to say. So there there's more communication there. And I think, you know, we, we were still doing what we did um, as far as a, an investigative agency. We're, we're using all the information in those documents, all the information we have with the phone calls, the information from the pastor. We're trying to put all that together and make sense of this in some way and, and reduce this to something understandable. Um, so the next morning on Tuesday morning, when I, I get into the office very early, start uh, start processing when i get involved in a case like this i mean it's 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 not going away it's going to be with me until it's, it's done so it consumes you everything it's it, you know I, i'm i don't sleep well i'm i'm thinking of new approaches and things maybe we haven't done and things that we need to do and just you know putting that list together in my head so i went into the office very early in the morning and um it wasn't soon after I got to the office that I heard that there had been another shooting, uh, that Conrad Johnson had been shot as he was stepping off of a bus. <clears throat> and then a couple of hours later, uh, an ATF guy reached out to me and he said, hey, we've got the, the fingerprint back from the catalog out of Montgomery, Alabama. It's coming back to a Lee Boyd Malvo, but he's a black male. So we don't think he has anything to do with this. So this is the first time you've heard Malvo's name, correct? Yes. Yep. He gave me gave me the name, date of birth, um, his FBI number, um, and may, and maybe another number in there too. Just there was he said there's one arrest on his record. And let's talk about that real quick. I think we kind of touched on it before, but why was why was he in the system? He had been contacted by INS in uh, Blaine, Washington, um, over an immigration matter, the the state of Washington. So that record, you know, they took fingerprints at that time, and those fingerprints matched one of the prints on that firearms catalog out of Montgomery, Alabama. So, but now, the, and so now you you have all this, and this is a cool thing about it, man, because you've got all this background information and. You know, you've heard what Lenny and Vinny told you about the Jamaican reference, which is going to typically indicate it's going to be a black male instead of a white male. Right. And also the pastor is indicating that the younger guy had an accent um, where everything is kind of coming together here. Um, I kind of put everything aside when I, when I saw the information and I just said, I'm going to work this now. You know, I, I probably had 10 other folders on my desk with other people that had been identified as potential suspects. But this one, you know, immediately came to my attention. And when I saw the record there, I called a friend with INS and I said, I need everything on this file right now. So he he sent me a couple of pictures. Um, He sent me all the pedigree information. Um, There were a couple of references in there to um, Bellingham, Washington and Tacoma, Washington and because the the contacts with INS out there had been in concert with some other law enforcement activity. So as soon as I got that, 
I called a friend of mine or a colleague, Mark Jurgensen, who was a senior inspector with our technical operations group out in Seattle. And I told him I needed everything from Bellingham PD um, on, on Lee Boyd Malvo. So he started sending me reports almost before I was off the phone. I, I started getting reports in, police reports, and contacts with Malvo. And every one of these things, I read them through like three or four times. Every one of these reports had a reference to John Muhammad or John Williams. And there was even a reference to him calling him his son. Um, so the, the next few hours, I started gathering everything I could on John Williams, John Allen Muhammad, Lee Boyd Malvo. Every every record that I could find, I, I found that Muhammad was in the military, so I reached out to the military, and they start sending records into me as well of his military service. And hey, Billy, and, and the other thing too is when you get involved in an investigation like this, a lot of times if you're doing standard investigations, there's a lot of red tape you have to go through in bureaucracy. You got to file this and file that. How were you able to cut through, uh, especially like with the military or getting records or other stuff, how were you able to cut through all of this red tape to get stuff, like you say, in minutes as opposed to, Steve, you and I have been the victim of this too, right? You make a request, you know, I'll get it to you in a couple, three days or whatever, right? I mean, yeah, this is obviously absolutely. very urgent. How do you cut through all the red tape? Well, most of this is our public reports anyway, and I and I went through people that I knew, you know, our, our colleague in Seattle or uh, a guy that I knew at INS or a person that we worked with through the military to get their records. Um, it's based on relationships a lot of time. That Absolutely. You, yeah. You, you just, if you know people and, and cultivate those relationships over a period of time and get to know those people, it's a lot easier than uh, what Cold you may calling. have to go through yeah. formally. Yeah. Cold yeah, calling doesn't get you very far. You know, in every law enforcement conference that Javier and I speak at, we talk, it has nothing to do with our topic, but we talk about the significance and importance of networking. Don't just go hang out with your little buddies here that you came to this conference with. Meet everybody else in here, because the next time you need something, when you know somebody, your request goes to the top of the pile versus the bottom of the pile. It's You're right. Yeah, all about yeah, who you know. It, it is. Um, and, and that was the case throughout my whole career that... Those relationships were, you know, they went hand in hand with the success that our agency had. And, and I'm not the only one. I mean, it's it's in the DNA of people with the marshal service to make those contacts. We, we need them. Um, and, and you know as well as I do, I mean, DEA is a small agency just like the marshal service. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough resources. You need lots or, of friends or, 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 to get this job done. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You need another $10 million and 200 people usually to, to get work done, but you, <laughs> but you make it happen uh, with, with what you have. Um, so I, I worked uh, the rest of the day into the afternoon just putting all this together on both of these guys ordering pictures. And now I, I'm getting the feeling because of the Jamaican connection that this is, this is it. These are the two guys, an older guy, a younger guy. You know, one's acting as the father of the other. You know, it's making a lot of sense. And I'm getting reports in from Bellingham on both people. I'm finding out that John Williams was involved in a um, in a in a alleged kidnapping by his second wife uh, of taking the kids away from her. She she went a year and a half without seeing her three kids. Um, and. 
it's just all coming to get everything you're you're looking at is making sense as opposed to you know the file I have on my right here where I just nothing's coming together. You just kind of get that that gut feeling because of all the cases you've worked before that there's something here, and I got I got to stay on this. So I, I'm in our photo lab producing pictures of 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 uh, Malvo at this point. I got two or three pictures from INS, I believe, and I'm producing pictures of him and and trying to get him out to the command post, but the command posts aren't really believing in this yet. So. <laughs> Nobody's really taking these Why, pictures. Why, they still think it's a single white male, 30 years old, who's, you know, lost his job and is angry at the world? Well, and just just nobody knows. So I in early that afternoon and into the evening, I start doing conference calls, basically, with each command post and the jock, explaining what I think is happening here. And I think most of them just thought, hey, it's a good theory, but we need more. Um, except for an FBI agent down in Richmond. As soon as I got off the phone with him, he called me back and he said, I think you got something here. He said, do you have a picture of Muhammad yet? I said, no, but I will have shortly. And as soon as I get it, I can send it to you. He said, would you be willing to meet with Director Mueller in the morning and explain this to him? And I said, well, I'm going to be here all night putting this together. So, you know, I, I'll see what I can do, but I can't guarantee anything at this point. So I, I, I briefed people at Marshal Service headquarters. I briefed people in Fairfax, down in Richmond, over in Prince George County, up at the Jock. And like I said, it, it was the one FBI agent who just said, I think you got something here. I, 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 want, I, I want to know more. So I... I uh, a meeting was scheduled with my, um, you know, bosses at headquarters, the the director of the marshal service, the ne for the next morning, based on what I had come up with. There was also people from Virginia and Maryland offices and D.C. that would be there, and I was going to lay all this out for them. So I couldn't meet with Director Mueller at the time. Um, and I was still trying to get a good picture of John Muhammad. Well, I, I saw that he had two different driver's licenses. So I contacted, uh, I think I got one from immigration because, because he had had an immigration file as well after he returned from Aruba one time. He had had contact with immigration. So I, I recall a, like, a, a very, you know, booking type picture with, with John Muhammad, but I didn't use that one. I got a hold of a friend of mine in California. I saw that Muhammad had a California driver's license. I called a friend of mine. It was probably, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock in California. Um, he is a fellow deputy there. I went through the academy with him. His name is Ralph Garofalo. And I said, Ralph, don't give me a hard time with this. I know it's late. I need, I need a DMV picture now. And he said, well, it's late. Can you can it wait till tomorrow? I said, no, I need it tonight. So do what you got to do. Go into the office, make some phone calls. I need it tonight. So I gave him all the information. He called me back and he said, hey, what's the hurry with this big thing? I said, I think you're looking at one of the snipers here in D.C. Send me that picture now. Priority level just shot to the roof, didn't it? And I sent uh, I sent the picture down to the FBI agent 
And that's when he called and he said, listen, I, I, we got to talk tomorrow morning somehow. I, you, you, I think you're onto it here. I think you got it. So I also did late that night. I sent a request off to um, the FBI in, in Clarksburg, West Virginia, where NCIC is located, asking for a search of John Allen Muhammad, John Allen Williams, Lee Malvo, for any contacts that they may have had with law enforcement over a period of time. And for the folks that are listening, NCIC, National Crime Information Center, but one of the unique things they do out at Clarksburg is every time, like, say, a trooper pulls you over, a, a police officer pulls you over, or somebody, FBI agent, DEA agent, runs your name through NCIC, that's captured in an NCIC offline database. So, you know, all of these names are captured, and I assume that's what you were getting into, right, the offline database for the inquiries? Yes. Yeah, I, I asked for a specific offline search on all three of those names. I also got the picture in from California DMV, John L. Muhammad. He's, he's in military fatigues, kind of got a little scowl on his face. You know, a few days later was a picture that was on the front page of USA Today. Um, during the night, I'm making copies of those pictures now because I know it's going to explode the next day. I just feel it that these are the guys. Probably at around 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm trying to get a little rest there at the office, and, and the fax machine starts just spewing out, you know, page after page after page from the FBI. So I, I gather it all up, and I'm going through it, and there's a lot of inquiries, you know, on different names that are close. There are some inquiries within the last probably five hours from some of the people at the command post that I spoke with earlier in the evening. Who didn't believe you, and now they're checking the names for themselves, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, <laughs> but I, I saw one entry in there that grabbed my attention, and it was um, from Baltimore Police Department. It had been a contact, um, I believe, the day after uh, Iran Brown was shot. And it was a contact with a John Allen Muhammad. Um, sometimes you can't tell very much from these contacts. Uh, you know, they can be very general in nature. So when I went to the meeting at, uh, at Marshall Service headquarters, I spoke with the chief deputy there. And I said, hey, I, I need to track down whatever this contact was by the Baltimore Police Department with this John L. Muhammad, I, I, either late on the 7th or early on the, on the 8th of October. And uh, so he, he called and he put a deputy on it right away. Well, they couldn't find it. They just could not find the information. And at this point, the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of pictures of both these guys that I had been making throughout the night and the previous day, I, I can't make them quick enough now. All the all the different command posts want these pictures immediately. So while I'm at the meeting, that process continues, and I brief everybody at headquarters, and we're certain. And now we have a search underway at Baltimore PD, and they're searching their their audio files, trying to find this thing. And so the day goes on with that. After I leave headquarters, I get a call from. Uh, 
you know, one of one of the assistant directors or or someone, the director's office, and he just said, "Hey, these two guys you're describing, they're both white males, right? They're they're they they fit this profile." And I said, "No. Oh my they're god. They're both black. They're both black males." And they said, "Oh, well that makes a difference." Because they were getting, I think, I think our director was getting ready to brief the attorney general um, on what had been developed. So I go back to the office and I'm doing some more work. I'm, I'm gathering everything. Now, one thing that I was concerned about was I didn't have any information putting either one of these people in the D.C. area. Why were they here? Why were they in D.C. doing this? Well, as I'm looking through one of the reports, I see that Muhammad has an ex-wife that lives in Clinton, Maryland. Now, now he's got a reason to be here. And this is the wife that alleged the kidnapping. And so I, I, I called the Baltimore office again, and we started a surveillance on her place immediately until we could get a for, more formal, you know, probably a tactical team to keep an eye on her because... She was obviously in danger at this point. Oh, yeah. But it gave them a reason to be in D.C. And I knew at that point, this, these, these are the guys, no doubt. So the search at Baltimore goes on into early afternoon. Well, what are they using, smoke signals to communicate? I mean, it's one stop. I mean, how why was it so difficult for them to find this? They, they couldn't track down who the officer was that made the stop because the information I'm looking at only shows the terminal that is making the inquiry. So they had to go back and listen to the tapes and find it. Well, they finally found it. Um, but in the interim, as I'm watching and, and, you know, the information out in Washington state has exploded with, with what we have now with the reports from Bellingham and Tacoma and, during this process, I called up to the jock and spoke with Michael Moran from our office. And I said, hey, can you check this name through Rapid Start? And it came back that they had one tip that came in through Rapid Start from a guy named Robert Holmes, who claimed to have been in the military with John Muhammad. And he also knew Lee Malvo and made a reference in his information that they had that Mel, uh, Muhammad had referred to Malvo as sniper. The tip that had come in and was put into rapid start, there was no disposition on it. It had not, he had not been interviewed um, until that morning. And now they were, you know, at, at Mr. Holmes's front door needing all the information they could get. And he told them about a tree stump that they used to shoot into on a piece of property there. So that afternoon, it, it was Where was this property at? Tacoma, Washington. Okay. So the internal discussions were, we're not going to, you know, mention any connection to the snipers in D.C. with this. It, it was out early afternoon. There, there were helicopters above the property showing them gritting it off and removing the stump that they had shot into to, to hopefully match ballistics with um, the other shootings. So I, at that point I was not a happy camper because in, I, we knew that they had been listening to media reports because of what had happened with the child. 
we knew they were trying to communicate. So in my opinion, they're probably watching this thing from the YMCA somewhere. And I was, I was not happy. I kind of stormed out of the office and just, I went down the, the road in Springfield, Virginia and just parked and just screamed a little bit and punched the ceiling. Made a, couple, <laughs> made, made a couple phone calls, you know, just tried to calm down a little bit. Hey, hey Billy, so, th- that was such close hold information that had to be a leak internally, didn't it? I, I, I'm not trying to pin anything on anybody, but I'm going, it just, you know, we're talking about people's lives here. And then you, how does information like this get out other than somebody intentionally leaking it to the press? Because how do they know where to look for that stump, what address, what name? Well, it, it certainly leaked out. And my big concern was, you know, these guys are in this car now. They're in a car. We we assume they're in a car that we don't know about at this point. And if they get pulled over for a bad taillight, you know, the officer may think it's, you know. They don't know because it's not a white panel out. truck. They don't know what they're looking at. I, I, I think that every officer that comes close to that car is in danger at this point. You know, because they're they're going to be doing it unwittingly while the two killers are in the car. Right. And we know at this point it's uh, most likely uh, uh, a 223, right? That they've got enough information from ATF to know that we're dealing with a high-powered rifle, a 223, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Walter Dandridge from ATF had determined that very early on. He worked probably black the magic. The stuff he was able to piece together from fragments and everything and match these, that, that is the, he's a dark arts practitioner. That is just some awesome work on the part of ATF. <laughs> yeah, he did a great job. He was critical to the developments in this case and moving forward as quickly as it did. So I, I walked back into the office and uh, one of the senior inspectors came up to me and he said, Hey, way to go. You know, I'm, I'm glad we finally got that license plate. I, I hadn't known about it. Um, well, they had found the recording from Baltimore. They talked to the officer and he had actually run the license plate as well of the car that the guy was in. Um, so I said, well, wait a minute. There's, there's a few John Muhammad's around what kind of driver's license did the guy have? We we need to know that. Did he have one from Oregon or did he have one from Washington State or California or Oklahoma? And the guy said, well, I wrote it. I wrote down a number here, but I don't remember what state it was. And I said, well, I'm going to send you a picture right now. I sent it to his email. He called me back a minute later. He said, that's 100 percent the guy that I had contact with in the in the blue caprice in the parking lot of the the donut shop i forget the name of it so he said yeah they were definitely in that car it's a new jersey plate which didn't make sense either um at that time but now we had the plate and so the next meeting was you know what do we do with the plate do we put it out do we not put it out and the decision was made not to do it which I think with what was happening in Tacoma was the wrong decision. Um, we knew that they were monitoring news news events, so they probably knew about that. You know, were they going to dump the car? Um, if we if we don't put it out there, you know, we're just going to kind of hope that somebody sees it because um, they didn't even want to put it out to the law enforcement at that point. They just wanted to put it out to certain people in the task force, I guess. 
So as that process continued, a material witness warrant was issued for Lee Boyd Malvo. We, we had enough to issue a material witness warrant because we didn't have the firearm and, you know, and a lot more information. They just, he, neither one could be criminally charged at that point. But Malvo could be charged as a material witness. So federally up in Maryland, they charged him as a material witness, which is a warrant that the Marshal Service has responsibility for. So, you know, I was just mulling over what what do we do here now? We've we've got the vehicle license plate. We're not doing anything with it. So, you know, the officer safety thing was on my mind the whole time. And I decided to get a hold of our communications center and put out a lookout, just an administrative message to every law enforcement agency in the country and let them know that Lee Boyd Malvo is wanted as a material witness and maybe in the company of John Muhammad. Um, I sent that out. The first one went out at 1750 uh, hours, but it, ident it identified, um, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe not, I'm kind of going through a couple of them here. Morgan, that's 515 if you were wondering. No, 550. He said 1750, 50 Murph. Your hearing's going too. Huh? Yeah, actually, huh? the the first the first one went out at uh, eight forty seven p.m. and it basically said, "Be on the lookout for a wanted subject, Lee Malva, wanted by the Marshal Service as a material witness, maybe in the company of John Muhammad, the owner of a blue Chevrolet Ford or nineteen ninety license NDA twenty one Z, New Jersey. Hold the car and occupants if located." Well, I noticed in here. After I read it a couple times, there was no caution, you know, and and that's a critical element in here. It also had Lee Malvo described as a white male. So that was continuing. So, so Billy, just real quick. I mean, the reason I'm asking this, too, is you, you are putting in so many hours. Was, was that just from the fog of everything, just from the, the sheer... Um, uh, I mean, you got to be tired. I mean, how much sleep have you gotten in the last, you know, 48, 72 hours? Probably none in the last 48 um, since I got in on Tuesday morning and now it's Wednesday night. Um, but I, I I didn't draft the message. The message was drafted by our people in our comm center. Oh, okay. Um, and we had a person assigned there that was helping out with the case. So I, I didn't draft the message. When I saw it, you know, we... we uh, about 20 minutes later, we put out a corrected message, you know, having him, uh, describing him as a black male. Um, now it had a caution, armed and dangerous, um, with much of the same information. Now, l let me ask you something. You, you Normally in the feds, there's all sorts of levels of approval you have to go through. So you kind of winged this one, didn't you? You kind of called an audible on the field, as they say in football. Well, I think it, uh, I was a senior inspector at the time. I think it, at that level, you're you're at a supervisory level, but called a senior inspector. I think I had the ability to do it. I used to send messages out all the time anyway in my normal course uh, at that level. So I, I don't think I was bypassing any levels of uh, authority or anything like that. Um, so we got the message out there and probably within, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes, I'm watching a TV with the sound down, and I see the New Jersey license plate 
as big as you can see it. I knew it was going to happen, and I was glad that it was out there. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew I knew that the media would be monitoring, you know, law enforcement communications, and this thing was being sent out to to terminals and uh, and across radios across the country. Somebody was going to pick up on it. It said nothing about the sniper case, um, but some people made the connection, and uh, it was on TV very quickly. Well, it, it worked out because it was broadcast on the radio, and a man who was on his way back to Pennsylvania, refrigerator repairman, pulled into the uh, rest area um, near Myersville, in Maryland and saw the car. And over a period of time, it was difficult, from what I understand, at certain times, uh, it was difficult communicating with the law enforcement to, to let them know that the car was there and whether or not any there were any occupants. I mean, did they dump the car once they saw what was happening? Did they dump the car once they saw the license plate? Um, we just didn't know at that point. It was, it was late in the evening, you know, it was, it may have been after midnight when Whitney Donahue seized the, the vehicle in that rest area and the Maryland state police pounced on it. And when they were told what was happening, they were told to refer back to that message to get the information off of it for, for the lookout. It's the it's the vehicle in the lookout. <laughs> so they were able to get a perimeter on that place and, and they went to a local McDonald's and did some rehearsals. And there was a at one point, there was a phone call um, about who's in charge of this thing, um, which is normal, I guess. And um, the U.S. Marshal from Maryland, who was a former colonel with the Maryland State Police got on the phone and said, listen, this isn't, you know, an argument or anything. He's a very calming person. He said, you know, this is, the state police have got this. They do this all the time. They're in charge. Because you had, you had different agencies gearing up their tactical teams now. You know, some people showing up in, in non-uniform type you know, apparel and the Maryland lieutenant that was in charge, Maryland state trooper that was in charge. He said, I, I can't use you guys. You know, I, I got to have everybody in some type of uniform with insignia. So everybody knows who everybody is. So they put dogs out in the, the median of, of I-70 there. They shut down the freeway going west um, they actually got Jeff Nice. And in fact, if you guys go back and listen to episode 18, Billy, what you're saying, Jeff Nice goes through that whole thing because it is. It's FBI HRT. It's Jeff. It's Maryland State Police. They've got a team of people who have worked and trained, you know, at least to this point that eventually end up doing that takedown. And it's such a great it is so great to hear your piece of it to lead into Jeff's piece to see how all of this to see how all of this comes together, because Jeff gives an on-the-ground, second-by-second, minute-by-minute, to your point, how they did the rehearsals at the McDonald's, flying in on helicopters, doing this, doing that. Truck drivers, who they got, they they talked to them and got them to use their truck trailers to block the entrance and exits so that Malvo and Muhammad couldn't get out of there. And 
so I mean, you know, this is not uh, this is not a spoiler. Everybody knows these guys get caught in the and uh, if you've listened to episode eighteen, you know how it gets done. But let me ask you this, Billy: after all of this is done, once you get the word is that Malvo and Muhammad are in custody, how does that make you feel? Number one, to know that a it's over, but b that you were vindicated, that this profile was wrong, that you were following your instincts, and this was the right information that led to it. I, I didn't look at it as a vindication. I was just, you know, and and I worked with a lot of great people, too. It wasn't just myself. Oh, um, and, and I didn't know, mean was, to imply that because you guys are always so humble. I mean, it does take a team, but 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 you relentlessly, like you said, you you were relentless on this. You worked it. You pulled stuff together when everybody else was discounting what you were saying and you stuck with it. And kudos to the FBI agent down there who said, hey, I think you got mm-hmm. something. Forget about the PR and the politics and agency. We're here to stop somebody else being killed. That, I mean, that's the, at the end of the day, that's what this is thing about is get these guys before they can kill again. Yeah. And I, and I just, you know, the marshal service is a little bit different agency. We, and I mentioned this in the book, we don't stand at the podium at most press conferences. We stand at the end of the line. Um, even though we may play a critical part in the apprehension of somebody dangerous. Uh, and this was no different. Uh, when they had the press conference, you know, following the arrest of these two guys, Johnny Hughes from Maryland stood at the end of the line with no speaking role, um, although his agency contributed significantly to this case. Um, during the time that it was happening, um, I was still in my office in, in the Springfield area, and I didn't know if they were still in the car or not. Um, I was still kind of working the case. I in the event they weren't there, I was ready to move on with some some uh, traps and traces and pen registers on some relatives that I now knew about um, in Louisiana and Washington State and Maryland, uh, you know, of John Muhammad primarily because um, Lee Malvo was from Jamaica. So he only his mother was in the United States, but we were still working on, you know, her location at the time. But I was ready to go forward. I was talking to the two assistant U.S. attorneys in Maryland. And it's, you mentioned getting, that, too. The other thing, too, that factors into that, they're on Interstate 70. This rest area is right off of I-70, close to what my kids called Fredneck. You can't spell Frederick without Redneck. But, you know, outside Frederick there in Myersville, <laughs> it's very possible. I mean, that's that's their joke, not mine. But but the other thing, too, you got to think about, too, again, like you say, gaming it out, you got to think, did they pull into this rest area, carjack somebody, kill them, leave that vehicle there, and now they're on interstate going somewhere? So to your point, you got to keep working the case until you've got definitive proof. You don't want to give these guys an inch of daylight in case they're not in that vehicle. Yeah, and and we were asking all those questions as well. You know, there were no reports of stolen cars in the area, so we felt good about that. But if they did carjack somebody and kidnap somebody, uh, we probably wouldn't know about that right away. Um, they they had that car backed into a place. It was described to me. At one point, I got a call from um, an ATF agent, I believe, telling me that they are both in the car. Um, that was probably around 2.30, 2.30 you know, 2.45-ish in the morning. And um, I took a little breather at that point, knowing that they were in the car, because I I knew that, you know, whichever tactical team was going to approach that car was going to get taken care of at that point. Um, So a short while later, um, Michael Moran from the Joint Operations Center called me up and said they're both in custody. Uh, the U.S. Marshal from Maryland called me up and said the same thing. He said, hey, I need to let you know they're both in custody. So 
I actually kept working for a little bit because well, it's I, the I wrong knew... people. They're not a white male, single, thirty. <laughs> and they a white got van. The, did you? Yeah, a white van. Did you call them? Say you guys got the wrong people. I'm being yeah. sarcastic. Um, sorry. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I I kept working because I knew what was next. Um, you know, they they have to be in court within 24 hours, and and so that process, you know, comes upon you very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, putting my files together and, and what we were going to need, you know, going forward there. So I, I was ready to go with the prosecution, you know, early that morning. I did, uh, I did make one phone call that night. I, I, call, I, I don't think I put this in the book, though. I called my father. You know, he had been kind of monitoring the case and everything. I called him and said, they're both in custody. It was, you know, four o'clock in the morning. He I think he kind of grunted and then hung up. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was not in the book. <laughs> ha, have, having been uh, in law enforcement for the time that he was, you know, we had talked about it over the previous weeks. Um, I thought he might want to know. Um, so I, I called him early in the morning just to let him know. That's pretty cool. Um, Very good. Oh, man, I got to tell you, Billy, I'm, I'm, I get, I'm sitting here with goosebumps right now because yeah. just listening, and I got to tell you, I've known you for a long time. We've probably been going on, what, 10 or 12 years, you know, by now. And But it's like, but to hear the story from you and what you did, man, I, I can't tell you how much respect I already had for the Marshal Service and what you did. But, man, what, what uh, just an awesome, awesome job you did on this case. And it, it, I know there's other people involved. But but this, like you say, you knew early on in the Marshals, hey, this is kind of what I'm destined for. This is what I'm good at. And you certainly proved it out here. And I got to tell you, as a citizen in Loudoun County, all this stuff's going on around me. I, I got to tell you how great that felt for me to know, hey, my kids are safe. We're safe. These guys are in custody. I, I just I, I can't tell you, you know, hats off. You know, here's me saluting you. All the good stuff Murph and I do. I just can't tell you how proud we are to have you on this podcast and what you did for the American people. Absolutely. Well, I pre- yeah, I appreciate that. But um, I- I'll take that. Uh... Uh, for the entire marshal service, because Take it for the team, absolutely. Like I said, the, it's it's become a great agency, and since you know the late seventies, early eighties, the agency has really developed into uh, the best in the world at what they do there. And um, you know, just this last fiscal year, they arrested eighty five thousand felons across the country, including six thousand people wanted for murder, and including um, talk about the number of recovered kids that you guys have found with mm-hmm. these operations to find the children of sex trafficking, making sex offenders accountable for not registering. I mean, you guys have just done amazing things that I don't think the public knows enough about, yeah, since the passage of the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, the Marshal Service has really taken the lead on missing children and uh, uh, non-compliant sex offenders. So um, there's, they've come up with different ways over the years to address missing children or, or children that are believed to be in trouble. Um, I believe that last year um, they arrested around 400 individuals that were non-compliant. Just, they may not be doing anything wrong, but they're just not complying with their conditions of release. Um, see, they seized 7,000 firearms last year. Um, they do a great job at it, and they continue to do a great job. And it's it's kind of a a thing where there's only a few people. Like I said, you know, and I mentioned this to Steve, the marshal service is small. Um, probably less than four thousand deputy U.S. marshals to protect all of these judges, you know, around the country, the federal judges and magistrates, and 
and um, and they transport you know three hundred thousand prisoners a year, maybe two hundred and twenty thousand via Con Air, you know, from place to place, and uh, they protect all the the people in the witness security program. They do it with a, a very minimal amount. Um, so to apprehend 85,000 people in a single fiscal year, and those apprehensions don't happen with just the marshal service. It, it's a partnership, like we talked about earlier, with all the state and local and federal agencies that we work with across the country. It's it's a partnership that has been de- developed over many years before me and many years after me now. Reminds me of the Farmer's Creed. We, the unwilling, led by the unknowing, having done so much for so long with so little, we're now qualified to do anything with nothing. And you guys have sure done a hell of a lot with the resources you have. You know, I, I got to tell you, if if I was a criminal, you guys are the last organization I'd want coming after me. I had the pleasure in Atlanta of working with Jerry Lowry with the Marshal Service and on a couple different occasions. Uh, I did two tours down there. And never hesitated to answer the call immediately. There was never any whining. It's about let's get the job done. And then didn't really care who got the credit. It's just fantastic. Uh, and, and I'm serious when I say that. People like you, I mean, you're a savant when it comes to this. You know, this this is a, a, a talent given to you by the good man above. And you've taken it to the nth degree, man. Extremely honored to have you here on the show with us. This is unbelievable. And just like Morgan said, the fact that we're bringing closure to what Jeff Nice told told us, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard the rest of the story. The rest, and along with Aaron Turner's embedded episode, our special thing. This is like you get the technical, you get the tactical, and now you get the operational. I mean, folks, this is one stop podcasting here. I mean, we we have told a story (laughs) like no others, and in fact, we got more information out of Billy than what he was willing to put into the book. I still want. I'd love to hear that phone call. Hey, Dad, we caught him. Yeah. Good. Call me tomorrow. <laughs> click. <laughs> That's great. That's that, was pretty, that was pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're fathers. <laughs> yeah, we're fathers. Yeah. Tell, tell me something new. You know, tell me in the morning. This could wait till tomorrow morning. But hey, good for you. Yeah. Click. You know. But hey, Absolutely. but real quickly too. Um, I want to talk about the book real quick, but the thing I love about the story you told about your dad too, though, is tell us about the, cause I'm a, you know, I grew up in Mishawaka for a while. My dad taught ROTC out at Notre Dame. We're both huge fighting Irish fans, but your dad kind of has a place uh, with Notre Dame there. Tell us really quickly about what your dad does. Yeah. Beginning in uh, 1966, he began uh, working with part of game day operations for uh, the home football games um, initially started as working on uh, the chain gang, which is, supplements the, the officiating crew uh, for the game. And later on, as he was doing that, he moved over to the Notre Dame sideline and, and worked the down marker and then up to the press box where probably for the last 15 years he's been working either the play clock or the game clock. And he just concluded his 50-50 year uh, of working at uh, home Notre Dame football wow. games. Wow. wow. So, so he called it, is that hit? He punched out? He's called it quits? I, I'm not certain yet, but it, it, everything looks like uh, he did his last game against Georgia Tech. Wow. So did Rudy. That was the, the Rudy and Georgia Tech. That's also an infamous little uh, final play of the year. What a great way. Now, they better honor him next year because I'll be watching. You and I talked about this. I, I wanted to go so much over to Ireland when they were going to play, and then COVID put a whole damper on that. So, But um, you have offered, and I will kindly take you up on it. We want to hit a home game. And so uh, I hear that you throw one of the most awesome tailgate parties uh, in the South Bend area. 
I help I help out with it. It's through a local uh, corporation here. I uh, don't want to say what it is right now, but um, I, I just help out with them. But you're certainly you're both invited. Thank you very much, Billy. Go Mountaineers! Yeah, but you can't wear that West Virginia. You can't wear that T-shirt, man. You can't go wear that. I got a jacket. I got a hat. I got T-shirts. We're because they to were go. free. Uh, <laughs> they do pl- they they do play Marshall next year. Well, Marshall's trying. You know, they're they're like the second team in West Virginia. The boy, I'm going to catch some grief over that one. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Hey, Billy, real quick, though, too, let, let's finish off by talking about what are you doing now? You punched. When did you punch out of the Marshall Service? And you've got a great relationship with John Walsh, the National Center for Missing Kids. You've done a lot for these guys. So when did you punch out and what have you been doing since then? Yeah, I, I left in 2014, retired in 2014, came back to uh, South Bend, Indiana. And since then, I have uh, been working with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as a consultant with Team Adam, which is the um, response group for real-time missing children's cases across the country. Um, I, I left the Marshall Service on a Saturday and started with the National Center <laughs> on Sunday. This sounds and familiar. You got an offer on a Friday, you're in the you're in the academy on a Monday, you know, you graduate here or you're there. I mean, have you taken a break yet? Have you gotten it? When's the last time you got a full night's sleep, dude? No, I'm fine. I, uh, I, I continue to consult with uh, another group. I work for Ahern Consulting uh, that is involved in uh, helping uh, groups like Northrop Grumman, Accenture Federal Services, um, bid on contracts uh, within the federal environment back there. So uh, I work with them quite a bit. Um, and I'm also on the board of directors for the U.S. Marshals Survivors Benefit Fund. Which, you know let what? Me t- Go ahead, Steve. This is just a perfect example of the saying I like to throw out there. Just simply because we retired does not mean that our oaths expired. You've been retired since 14, and you're still doing everything you can to help the public. God bless you, brother. Well, and the, you. and the work with the survivors, too, I will tell you, it, it is it is hard. It, you know, it, it it's difficult to go to these things when they do police week and they read out the names. And the marshal service have sacrificed a lot, too, not only of their own deputies, but of task force members, people who've been associated with the marshals. And so um, that, that's very important for me uh, that you do that kind of work. And it's it's very important that people realize the sacrifice these people make because you guys aren't going after parking ticket violators. You're right. going after the worst of the worst that society has out there. Everybody you go after, you just assume normally is going to be armed and dangerous, are going to be extremely dangerous. And a lot of marshals and a lot of task force members have lost their lives uh, in service of the uh, of the uh, the service there and serving warrants and doing things like that. Uh, taking into consideration Steve's connection to West Virginia, I had the opportunity to go to Wheeling in uh, November and meet with two families uh, who had lost um, a grandfather, father, husband. Um, they were court security officers. They were both retired police officers, but serving the federal court now. And they both uh, died due to COVID complications. And it was it was a tremendous honor to meet with them and provide some financial support that we're able to uh, to those families. Fantastic. We have the same thing in DEA, the DEA Survivor Benefit Fund. And you probably know Dick Crock down in Atlanta that runs it. And phenomenal. And, and the citizens out there, the private citizens that support that through their donations, you just don't know how much of a positive impact you have on a family when they go through a traumatic event like that. If the public only knew how much support there was, they would be shocked. But this kind of stuff doesn't get reported. I mean, the, right. 
you know, any, anyway, I, I don't want to go off on a rant there. I want to finish off on a high note. Let's finish off on your book, Billy, because I mean, it just, this is a who's who of cases. You've worked this stuff. Um, first of all, uh, I know that you've done some signings and stuff, so we can go to Amazon. You guys can find it. It's called Chasing Evil um, by Bill Sarukas. I uh, got a nice picture. looks like men in black on the front, you know, nice, uh, nice picture there. How, if they want to get signed copies, what are you, I know you were doing those, uh, every now and then how did, if somebody wants to get a signed copy, what do they do? They, they should contact me through either LinkedIn or Facebook and, uh, I'll send them the information. All right. Nice. And Hey, just, just to be sure, tell spell your name for people because. <laughs> yeah. And is it Bill or is it William on your, is on it your Billy? Is it Billy media? T? Is it Billy D Williams? You know, is what is it? Billy, Billy Badass. Badass? <laughs> <laughs> It, it's William, William on the book, uh, but most people call me Bill or Billy. So and it's spells Sorukas. Yeah. S-O-R-U-K-A-S, Junior. No. Yeah, don't don't call us dad. He'll just grunt in his reply and go, leave me alone. And don't call him at 4 a.m. either. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I, I got to tell you, Billy, man, it, like I said, it's been great working with you. You got a lot of good stuff. Uh, you know, I know that's going on. Some things in the works we can't talk about yet, but if it happens, we definitely want to bring you back and talk about that. Maybe some media-related stuff. We'll just tease with that. Maybe, maybe, if you're lucky, we'll tell you about it. But you're going to have to listen to the podcast to find out there about it. So, there hey, Billy, this is us saluting you saying thank you very much for your service to this country and for the community. And uh, we appreciate having you on. And uh, anytime you, you get an update on the book or you got something else coming out, you know, make sure you get a hold of us. We want to get it out to everybody. God bless okay, you, sir. Great. Thank you, guys. All right, everybody, stay tuned for the debrief. If that does not inspire the holy just hell out of you, I mean, think about the dedication of these people. Post 9-11, do we have terrorists again? You know, what is really going on here? People, Think about the dedication of these people to spend the time and effort they did. And I'll tell you what, we didn't want to give it away, you know, in the intro, but we can talk about it in the outro because you've already heard it. Had he followed the profile, had he been looking for just a white panel van and a white male, you know, single white male, blah, 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 the typical F, I mean, just go Google typical serial killer profile. We would, we might still be looking for the guys, but thanks to Billy and his tenacity, I mean, just no other word for it, tenacity. Right. You know, we were able to, we were able to get to these guys. They killed plenty of people, but fortunately they didn't were able to get to them before they continued on. You know, I, I can't say enough good words, mainly because I don't have the vocabulary, but Billy is phenomenal. He is the last guy in the world. If I was a criminal that I would want looking for me, I mean, <laughs> his professionalism, his dedication, his commitment, his expertise, his willingness to stay up for days and days and days in a row to get the job done, you know, to handle all the political Bull crap that goes along with those type of situations when you get multiple agencies, especially in the federal level and the D.C. area. I just saying we're taking our hats off to you, Billy, is not enough, brother. You are a true freaking investigative hero. I don't I don't know of anybody any better than what you did. And it was funny. He said, I'm going to send you a copy of the book. He said, but I, I know you're at, he said, I'll find out your address. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> Billy, find out our address. I'm, I'm hiding in a cave in lower Mongolia. Billy's going to find me. I guarantee you. Well, so now it makes me wonder how long he did surveillance outside the city winery in Chicago until Harvey and I pulled up the Uber. <laughs> 
oh my I mean, God. fantastic job. Just a true professional. I mean, to the to the nth degree of the word, man. Just so proud to have Billy on the show here. Yeah, and so you guys make sure you know, and we, we put the information. We'll put it on the webpage too uh, about how to find him. You can go to LinkedIn or Facebook, Billy Sarukas. But the book is called Chasing Evil. And you can find it on uh, Amazon. If you want an autographed copy, you got to get a hold of Billy on Facebook or LinkedIn. But if you just want to order it, you can go to Amazon or, you know, Barnes & Noble, your favorite site. It's called Chasing Evil, Pursuing Dangerous Criminals with the U.S. Marshals by William J. Sarukas, Jr. Billy, as we call him, Billy, you, as Steve said, man, you are a great American hero. You're a true fan of the show. And uh, for somebody to stalk you like they did, um, you know, got to worry about Billy a little bit. He knew where you and Javier were going to be <laughs> at the exact moment you were getting out. That's why you do not want the U.S. Marshals on your ass. Oh, my gosh. That's just creepy. But uh, love you, brother. Fantastic job. Thank you so much. All right. Well, hey, guys, if you like that episode and if you like Billy Sarukas like we did, just gone over to Apple and Spotify, hit that five stars. It really works. It's magic. We don't know how. But we know it works. It uh, really helps us out, too. So we really appreciate it. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. For everything about the show, our merch list, our book list, Billy's book now occupies a spot in the Hall of Fame on our book page. And uh, also Patreon. Man, you got to hit on Patreon. Patreon.com slash GameOfCrimes. We have so much good stuff on there coming out. Uh, we've got the uh, we've got our next series of episodes called "The Real DEA Narcos" on the Real DEA Narcos Cali Edition. Chris Feistel and and uh, Dave Mitchell, the guys who they made season three about, so that will be available uh, at the right level on Patreon. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. PayPal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes. If you just want to do a one-off, throw a little you know dollar or two over the fence, anything to help with a pause for the cause. But again, just you know, check out the Patreon. We really appreciate it. And Steve, I got to tell you, you know, it's 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 an honor to bring these episodes to everybody because guess what? Each week you have your tagline, I have mine, because I get to say thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. The Game of Crimes.